Welcome to the Defiant Podcast. Each week, we sit with those defying traditional finance and legacy institutions, the biggest brains and biggest names, and also those making a quieter but profound impact, the founders, investors, and creators of decentralized finance and Web3. You'll hear from them right here and get the scoop on how they're building at the frontier. I'm your host, Defiant founder, Camila Russo, putting this new world within your reach. Welcome to the Defiant Podcast. It's so great to have you here. Cami, thanks so much for having me. Please be here. This week on the Defiant Podcast, we speak with Hart Lamber, co-founder of the UMA protocol. UMA is an optimistic oracle on Ethereum that aims to record any knowable truth onto a blockchain. Hart was also CEO of OpenFolio, a personal finance tracking platform. And before that, he was a U.S. Treasuries trader for Goldman Sachs. Before we get into oracles and UMA, what are Hart's takes on this current market? If this is crypto's Lehman moment, how does it compare with the actual Lehman moment from someone who lived through it? It's pretty interesting if you compare. So, so I have a story where during the financial crisis, I'm on Goldman's trading desk. I'm a treasury trader sitting beside the swaps traders and Lehman is actually going bankrupt. And I'm there on the weekend, which is not something you usually do because there's nothing to trade. But I'm there on the weekend because we're trying to figure out what's going on. And the swaps desk in particular has no idea what their risk is. Like, not to like the closest billion dollars, right? Because they have all this swaps. There's so much opacity in the swaps market. And nobody knows who their counterparty is, whether their counterparty is solvent, whether they're going to make good on their margin calls, like all this stuff. And... It was wild, right? And I'm a young guy at this point. It's wild to sit there at like, you know, Goldman Sachs, supposedly the kind of the center of capitalism. They're like no idea what their risk is because nobody in the market knew what their risk is. And, you know, this is a sales pitch for DeFi. Like DeFi does solve this. There is transparency. You can, this is exactly what needed to exist back then where you could see who your risks are. It was transparent on, it's transparent on chain. You can see whether you're collateralized or who needs to be liquidated or all that kind of stuff. That is a wonderful thing. The crisis we have right now is not a DeFi crisis. It's a crisis of a bunch of centralized entities that are using some DeFi products here and there, but it's a bunch of centralized entities that have no idea what their risks are because they're using centralized financial tools. And they aren't using the innovations that DeFi has brought us in terms of transparency and seeing where your risks are and all that. So, I mean, again, I think you can say that the three arrows thing and then the contagion into all these other businesses into Celsius and all that, those that that does look like Lehman a lot, but it looks like Lehman on the like the centralized finance side of things, on the traditional finance side of things, not not the DeFi thing, where Compound and Ave have held up great, as an example. I think that's it's such a great point and it's you know this this issue of counterparty risk is exactly what what's been kind of the most damaging aspect of the crypto crash of this year right it's like not knowing how much you know of of celsius is uh, you know is missing or like how much three arrows borrowed and how much needs to be repaid because all of that is is opaque and you know un trackable, untraceable. Uh, and yeah, that looks a lot like 2008. So it's like, 
why rebuild this financial system using crypto and like the the assets like Celsius is kind of borrowing and lending crypto assets, but they're not using like the CFI entities are not using crypto rails, which actually improve are, are supposed to improve on the traditional financial system. But you know, it looks like they're just like falling on the the same issues that we 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 saw back in two thousand eight. Yep, hundred percent. And I mean, again, the the. The mistakes or the crisis, the contagion is happening at like the, the institutional level. And at the institutional level, they're using the tools of opaque agreements and con- financial, con- like opaque, bespoke agreements and unsecured loans and all this stuff that's really just TradFi tools that institutions have access to. At the retail level, it's not so much. The, the, the disastrous part here is that Celsius sold a product to retail users and then effectively gambled their money away with a bunch of other like untoward stuff. And I, I don't know all the details of the Celsius thing, and I, I shouldn't like point fingers before I know all the details. But the the evidence looks like they they made the retail people all had like transparency, and then the institutions all gambled their money away, and that seems bad. Yeah, totally. I'm wondering kind of your thoughts on whether it seems feasible that in the future you know, most of, you know, transactions and and the just the financial system will be happening in a more transparent on-chain way. Because I don't know, like it's, it's like there's, there's a reason why so much money was in, 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 in CFI, like it's just easier to use. And maybe at least there is some, some degree of the feeling of, of a safety net and, and so on. I, I don't know if, if you see a path where more and more funds are going to to DeFi, so that you know this this actually is you know we can prevent this in the future. Yeah, I think we could have like a very long conversation on that, but because I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this, like what are the another way of framing your question, Cami, would be like what are the what are the barriers to CFI using DeFi today? And some of the barriers I think are pretty real. Institutions are like centralized institutions, first of all, generally need a, a concept of an undo button, where if something goes wrong, they can undo things. And they have that in the form of legal recourse. You go and you sue somebody. DeFi doesn't really work that way. And uh, hopefully later on, we'll talk about how I actually think of DeFi as a, 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 an invention of like law, like a new type of law system, of legal of contracting system, more than an invention in finance which we can get into. But the the CFI institutions, they don't have an undo button in terms of legal recourse in DeFi, at least not by default. They also don't have a concept of identity, which brings up all kinds of problems when it comes to anti-terrorism, anti-money laundering, and all that kind of stuff. And then the centralized institutions, which are very much regulated, they have regulators that are attempting to regulate DeFi like it's a legal traditional financial contract, when it's just not. It's a different beast. So. I think those three barriers, those three hurdles are reasons why centralized institutions are not able to use DeFi at scale right now. And I do think that will get unlocked, but there's a lot of wood to chop there. There's a lot of work to do. And I think it's it's a process and I think it's going to move slow, but is what it is. In the, in the interim, I think DeFi grows in its own ecosystem 
and it grows and builds all this useful plumbing like we've seen over the last couple of years. And it just gets better and better as sort of a product offering. It just works better and better and better. And CeFi is going to want to use it more and more and more. And then the, the reasons, the barriers to that actual usage get figured out as time goes on. Yeah. Yeah, I, I believe so. So we know hard market insights, but what about UMA? As mentioned from the outset, it aims to record external information onto blockchains. We talk about the crucial problem it's solving and why it shifted away from structuring derivatives products. I wanted to let you know about A16C's new podcast called Web3 with A16C. We're excited to recommend what is sure to become one of the best podcasts for understanding and going deeper on crypto and Web3. It's hosted by Sonal Chaksi, former showrunner and longtime host of the A16C podcast, along with frequent guest appearances and hosting by Chris Dixon. This new show is really about building the next generation of the internet. You can listen to Web3 with A16C today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Be sure to follow it now. Back in early 2018, I had worked at Goldman and I'd seen all these OTC swaps and derivatives and all that. And I, I studied computer science university and kind of technical that way. And I'm sitting there and I'm looking at, at, at smart contract platforms like Ethereum. And to me, it was just an obvious way to write financial contracts. It seemed like a really useful way where you could use a public blockchain to write contracts that enforce payments between two or more counterparties. And so our original idea here, and this is again before DeFi as a term was invented, was to focus on how to make our, our, our kind of original idea was how to make risk universally accessible. How do we make it a protocol for risk transfer? And that brought us down the path of thinking through what sort of financial contracts like derivatives might look like in the blockchain space. And it ultimately, but to go back and answer your question, our goal here was to make financial products and services universally accessible, which is where the name comes from. UMA stands for Universal Market Access. And that was the, the, the mission. Okay, so the, the mission was to make financial instruments universally accessible. And the way to do that initially was through these derivative type of tokens, right? That uh, people were you know, able to build on, on, on uh, the, the UMA protocol. As I, I remember just like covering it, like, I don't know, the, on the very first issues of the Defiant, kind of covering UMA and the launch and just like the early crazy tokens that people were creating. Uh, so it's just like very in time. And now I'm, I'm just, I'm really interested in this shift from uh, derivatives and, you know, tokenizing different things into more kind of the Oracle aspect of, of the solution. Why, why did that shift happen? Yeah, totally. So to, to back up, when we're talking about making financial market, making finance universally accessible, I, I kind of break financial contracts down into two components. One is like the logic of what's supposed to happen, but like the if this, then that of a contract. And the other is the Oracle component, like the data that's the input to what should happen. And so if you think of an insurance contract is a really kind of clean example here, where an insurance contract has, says like, okay, if this event happens, make this payout. And if it doesn't, don't make that payout, right? It's, it, the logic's very simple. And then the Oracle component is actually arguably pretty difficult here, where it's like, did that event happen or not? 
And you can kind of actually work that logic through to everything. So including like Compound or Aave, like a lending protocol, you know, make this loan at this interest rate and don't liquidate provided that the price stays above this. And it all kind of works with these two interwoven components. Back originally, we were looking at trying to make markets universally accessible. And we we were thinking, okay, well, first of all, we don't even DeFi doesn't exist yet. What do people want to use it for? Like what how can we actually pique people's interests? We were figuring that out while we were also working on our own version of the Oracle problem. And we had a very specific design or idea on how to solve the Oracle problem, which we can get into. And originally we're like, well, we have this Oracle that can be used to get data for anything. So let's build synthetic tokens. Let's build to- people like tokens. Tokens are understandable. Let's build tokens that can track anything. And that was our original kind of synthetic token concept. We were going to use this as one version, one type of contract that we could use our Oracle for to showcase to, to the ecosystem like what this Oracle could do. And we did take people created all these crazy tokens, you know, some that were useful tokens that tracked the price of uh, of gas on Ethereum, tokens that tracked a, a basket of, of of stocks on Wall Street bets, tokens that tracked like the the ETH Bitcoin rate, like relative rate, which is like a pretty interesting one. Tokens that tracked Bitcoin dominance, a whole bunch of things got got produced. But we we sort of realized as the market has evolved the demand for those synthetic tokens, I don't think it's that strong right now. People in crypto are mainly interested in trading around other crypto. And I actually have views that real world assets, which are kind of in vogue on crypto Twitter right now, real world assets are are not particularly of interest to a lot of crypto users right now. And so we realized that our better way of showcasing what UMA can do is to focus on our Oracle concept and how it is an oracle that lets you get any arbitrary bit of data, which which we can get into. Okay, super interesting. So the the synthetic tokens were a kind of use case or demonstration of what the UMA Oracle could do. But you know, instead of going like following down that path, you guys decided let's just focus on on the oracle itself. And so yeah, let's get into what's special about the UMA protocol because. I guess, you know, there's there's Chainlink is like the, 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 the big kind of protocol. I mean, sorry, the the yeah, the application or project kind of providing oracles for blockchain ecosystem. So if you can maybe explain kind of how uh, UMA's protocol uh, oracle works and how it compares with Chainlink, which I, I believe like should like is is it kind of the, the, the leader the leading provider at the moment in in kind of oracles? Well, it certainly has a lot of usage and they, they do a good job. So Chainlink is used by a lot of DeFi protocols for price feeds. And like really the most commonly used price feeds are the Ethereum, the price of Ethereum in dollars, the price of Bitcoin in dollars, the price of like major cryptocurrencies in dollars. And Chainlink functions as a, a, an oracle that pushes data to the blockchain. So it pushes price updates onto a blockchain periodically. And they, they sign that data to say that it's correct and valid. And this design, I mean, I, I do think there are some weaknesses in the design, but I'm not a Chainlink hater. And there's a, I'm not a Chainlink hater at all. There's a big, big passionate community out there. What UMA does, though, is very different. Is It doesn't sit there and push data onto a blockchain. It functions as what we call an optimistic oracle. 
And the concept is really quite simple, where any, any application, any contract can make a request for any piece of knowable data, any piece of arbitrary data at all. They make a request. So like, who won the tennis match uh, last night? Um, uh, and anyone at all is able to respond to that question. Um, if, if no one challenges that response in a given challenge window, which is, can be set to different lengths, but let's say it's two hours. If nobody res- challenges that, disputes that answer, then that, that response is taken as truth. So optimistically, we assume people to respond truthfully. And that's, that's the core idea of like this optimistic concept. So the difference here is you have to wait this challenge period to get your data, but you can ask absolutely anything that is knowable and you're not limited to a set of price feeds. Now, what's the incentive for the, the, the people who answer those questions to answer truthfully? Well, so there's, I'm skipping ahead of some of the details, but at every layer of this, there's economic incentives. So the person that responds to a question can get paid a reward. Sometimes that reward's not needed. Sometimes there's like a natural reason why people want to respond to these questions. But anyone that responds to a question has to post a bond. They have to stake something of value so they have skin in the game. And if they get disputed and the dispute turns out that the person that responded originally was incorrect, that original responder loses their bond uh, and it goes to the person that disputed them. So basically, at every layer of the system, we have these economic incentives at work that keep people honest because they have skin in the game. And who resolves a dispute? That's where it gets super interesting. And that's the part that we spent a lot of time building like way back in 2018, 2019. Vitalik wrote or came up with like all the good ideas come from Vitalik. We know this, right? But uh, yeah, basically, (laughs) (laughs) basically Vitalik wrote Mm -hmm. a post called shelling coin back in 2014. And it was a design for a shelling point like Oracle system where people voted in secret. You paid the people that voted with the majority a reward and you penalize those that didn't. And you could show that this system would respond truthfully under certain assumptions, basically under the assumption that no one controlled more than half of the, of the token supplier, the voting supply. So we expanded on that. And that's something that we built. And that's the premise of like what UMA does. It is this shelling point voting system where UMA token holders, when there is a dispute, they vote in secret. They, there's a commit reveal scheme. So they vote what they think the truth is. And we can prove with game theory that the system, it's incentivized to vote the truth, the actual like truthful answer provided nobody controls more than half of our token supply. And so it's a really cool design that's been operating in production for a couple of years now. And it works, you know, I don't want to say that we've got everything figured out and works flawlessly, but it's worked better than I expected. We were able to ask lots and lots of questions at the optimistic oracle level. So you can think of this as a layered system. The optimistic oracle, if we stay optimistic, we can ask all these questions and there's no disputes and we just move on. It's fast and easy. And then when there is a dispute, it gets escalated to all of our token holders who vote in this shelling point voting system. And that has worked really well and has resolved a bunch of really interesting questions. Most notably, Polymarket, which is an information market or a prediction market, uh, Polymarket, they, they were resolving their questions in a centralized way until earlier this year. And they've switched to our system and they're using it to ask, you know, it's like 50 questions a day about who won various sports games or 
whether who won an election or whether things happened. And that system has just been working in a purely decentralized way, pretty flawlessly since they switched over. Oh, cool. And so, okay, how many people are participating in this, you know, in this system, like resolving disputes, uh, answering questions? Yes. Is it like a liquid kind of market? Like, and just like, if you can give, give me a sense of that and how many questions are asked per day, like I'm looking to kind of gauge the, the activity that's going on. Yeah. So it's like, it's like 20 to 50 questions that are getting asked per day right now. And I mean, it's, it's hard to know exactly the number of people responding because there's some simple problems or whatever, like they're behind addresses. So we don't totally know. But we do have like a, a reasonably diversified group of people that are responding to these. And Cami, I should actually back up to some of the questions that get asked can be responded to by bots too. Some of them are like questions that can, they don't need a human to type in the answer. You can run a machine to do so. So there's a combination of both questions that are being answered by humans and questions that are being answered by machines. Um, and all of them, you know, we have a fairly diversified. It's still not like it's not like hundreds of people, but it's 50-ish people that are sort of actively engaged in answering these things. And then disputes, disputes are a little bit harder for us to get data on because they don't happen that frequently. But disputes are have been triggered to date, disputes have been triggered every time they need to be triggered, which is which is good. And there is some diversity in terms of who is triggering those disputes too. So it's it's pretty cool. So so far, have any questions gone through like with incorrect answers? Not yet. I mean, well, I'll back up and say I'll back up and say that some of the disputes have been that have been escalated have been things that are contentious, and I think that there is like more than one right answer to. And in those circumstances, the right the right response of the system, in my opinion, should be to 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 put forth the most reasonable of these reasonable responses. Like, what is the best answer? So some of these are like get into some technicals. Like, should we be responding to the question? based on the spirit of what was asked or like very nitpicky about the wording and the words. Right. And I think depending on the facts and circumstances, you can actually look at it and see like, okay, well, both are not wrong, but one makes more sense. And generally speaking, I think this is a huge benefit of our system where we do have human judgment involved here. There is sort of like, if something gets disputed, it's getting debated by these humans that are exercising their own human judgment to figure out what the right answer is. And it handles a lot of edge cases much more elegantly than I think you're able to if you just program it in code. So there's a whole kind of... My whole thesis here is that disputes... Disputes and data is very hard to get absolutely perfect in real time. I would actually argue I think it's impossible to get data perfect in real time. There's always edge cases. There's always scenarios that like don't quite make sense. And so I think that our, our system at its core is trying to insert a layer of human judgment as the final step in sort of understand, in, 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 in resolving disputes about what the right answer should be. Super interesting. Do you think could 
could people make, I mean, participate in answering questions and, and solving disputes uh, as a way of gaining kind of additional, like, income? I mean, like, how much can someone expect to earn from answering questions correctly? I, I think so. I mean, again, there's both scary, there's both really cool and kind of scary versions of that too, right? Like, I think it would be very cool to, to be able to, to have an economy running through this. And we, we do right now at, at some scale. But, you know, we're also not trying to like trap people into this machinery and just have them sit there like responding to questions, right? But I, I, I do think it's not like it's play to earn, right? But it sort of is too. It's like, hey, if you can reasonably respond to this question, you can make money off of it. And you are providing and both on the proposing questions and on disputing them. And the reward for dispute for getting a correct dispute is substantially higher, right? So I think it is really cool if you can have humans watching this system. And it is, if you want like a really, really weird analogy, but that's actually kind of fun. Um, you can actually think of this voting process as like a human-powered blockchain, where every block, every voting cycle is basically a one block. And we are a bunch of humans are sort of being like, hey, what is the right answer here? They're sort of establishing consensus. And in this case, they're using the Ethereum blockchain as their way of writing down what they all think the right answer is, right? But as long as we have one honest participant that disputes things, it functions. And I think that's super cool. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to hear kind of some specific uh, use cases for this. Like we... We talked a little bit before about how maybe this can be used to improve how DAOs are working. Like we've had a, uh, we've we've been talking a lot about uh, DAOs and and just how the the DAO model has worked so far uh, in the podcast. We had Joseph DeLong in the previous episode, Hasu speaking about their experiences with Maker and and Sushi, and and there's obviously you know a ton of work. To, to do before, you know, DAOs can just like successfully run organizations. So wondering, you know, how can potentially, you know, maybe oracles make governance and just like execution in, in DAOs better? What do you think? I mean, I think there's a huge use case there. So I don't, one of the sort of dirty secrets about a lot of crypto right now, DeFi and Web3 is that there, there are these points of centralization that usually take the form of multi-sigs. And so people kind of like hand wave away and say, hey, we have this multi-sig, but like, you know, it's no big deal. It's like, it's not a point of centralization, but it kind of is, right? You've got like, yeah. yeah. And so I think if you step back and you look at a lot of snapshot votes, like many snap, many governance systems that use snapshot, the snapshot vote happens. That's great. But then it's up to a multi-sig to actually go and execute the vote, right? And the multi-sig could just choose not to or choose to like veto the vote or whatever else. And that isn't very good. So one of the cool use cases for optimistic oracles like what we've built um, is for uh, enforcing contracts or enforcing or basically repeating back data that is off-chain onto a blockchain. So in the use case of governance, a very useful and simple question would be, did this snapshot vote pass? And you can ask this Oracle system, ask our optimistic Oracle, 
did this government vote pass? If so, execute this transaction. If not, don't. And it's a very clean and very simple way to get around the centralization of a multi-sig. So an angle we are actively going down is basically looking at where multi-sigs are and asking the question, could our optimistic oracle replace them? And I think in most cases it can. So that's like a real useful place for getting kind of further decentralizing DAOs and DAO governance. So how would that work? Like, would a vote have to happen and then this contract would have to be established beforehand? Like a contract that says, if this vote passes and is approved, then do this and then the opposite. Like if it passes and and it it doesn't get, it's rejected, then do something else. And so like you'd have to write those both, like both of those contracts on UMA beforehand, then the vote happens and then those contracts get executed thanks to the Oracle. Is that how it would work? We can make it, we can make it simpler than that. So we, and this is, this is something we're launching very soon in the next few weeks too. So we have a, another brand we call Outcome, Outcome Finance. We actually launched this recently because we've been creating so many of these like DAO tooling things. We wanted to create a home for them. So we created this brand called Outcome Outcome Finance. The tagline is we want to help DAOs achieve positive outcomes. So and it's using a lot of our Oracle techniques. But we're we're launching something that we're tentatively calling the optimistic governance. And it follows in the lines of what it did to give them credit here. But it's basically a connection between a Gnosis multisig and snapshot. And it's a bit of code that we've written that says now when I propose my snapshot vote. I include the transaction that I want to have be executed. And in my Gnosis safe, I, I okay this contract to execute transactions that pass our, our Oracle. And then it's like a one, one button click and it's a seamless process for, so now when the snapshot vote is proposed, if it's passed, it gets, it get it asks the optimistic Oracle, Hey, this vote, I think this vote passed. I want to execute it. And as long as nobody disputes it, that that transaction will be allowed to get executed in the Gnosis safe. So very seamless, actually in some ways removes removes the centralization of a multi-sig, also makes it for less less work for the multi-sig signers. They don't have to sit around and like sign these transactions. And as a multi-sig signer myself, that's both a pain and a chore and also kind of scary because I don't always know what I'm signing. So we think it's a pretty cool use case. And that's something we're going to roll out in the next couple of weeks. Oh, nice. Yeah, I think I think that's that's definitely going to be really useful for executing DAO votes. And I, I, I'm also a multi-sig signer for my NFT project with Infinite Machine. And it's, it, it's a small project, but yeah, like it's such a vein. <laughs> so if things could be done like in an automated way, that'd be that'd be super helpful. DAOs continue to be a source of debate within the space. There's constant discussion regarding management, the issues surrounding governance, and relying too heavily on multi-sigs. Hart talks about the DAO model and how UMA's cross-chain bridge and DAO toolings can potentially help decentralize and automate some DAO processes. When you shop for plane tickets, you probably use Kayak, Expedia, or Google Flights. So why would you limit yourself to just one exchange when you trade crypto? To make sure you're getting the best possible price, you should use a DEX aggregator like Matcha. 
Matcha routes your orders across all the various DeFi exchanges on Ethereum, Polygon, Avalanche, BSC, Phantom, Celo, and Optimism to provide the best possible prices without taking any commissions. Matcha also has integrated fiat on-ramps, so you can buy directly with your credit or debit card and uses smart order routing that splits your order across multiple liquidity sources. First of all, there are some aspects of DAOs today that are super valuable. You know, we, the, the kind of Risk Labs team, we're a global team. I don't know. We got like 30 people in 20 countries. And like doing that in a traditional organization is really annoying, like really, really hard to try to employ all these people all over the world. It's, it's just challenging and difficult. And so I, I don't, I think we should realize that the global nature, the fact that DAOs are global by default is super cool, super compelling and like useful today. On the other hand, though, I think some of the DAO thinking is making the same mistake a lot of early DeFi stuff did too, which is just failing to research what has already been discovered. There is like a very, very long history and like academic literature around how organizations are constructed around like the principal agent problem. How do you put somebody in like, how do you pick a principal that's in charge of like some power that a bunch of agents pick? Like there's a lot of theory here around what organizational structures work well in what circumstances. And I think that DAOs should spend a lot more time kind of looking at that and being like, hey, we figured this out like a thousand years ago that this structure works well for this and not well for that. And, you know, like the, the example that I like to point to, right, Amazon is not run by its shareholders, right? Like Amazon as a DAO would be insane if we asked the shareholders to vote on every decision that Jeff Bezos, or it's not Jeff anymore, but I actually forget who their CEO is, Andy, I guess. If we had a DAO vote on every decision that, that, uh, that, that Jeff is supposed to make, that's like completely insane. It just doesn't work. And I think DAOs sometimes make that problem. Like if you're going to be doing complicated things, there are going to be some people that know more and have more expertise, information, knowledge, or whatever else that you do have to entrust to make some decisions. And so if you want the kind of very pure DAO that's run by the individual entities, maybe that does work better for simpler institutions or simpler organizations like an investment club or some sort of smaller type collectives. I don't know. Right. But it's funny. I think you're right that DeFi, DAOs, it seems like they're kind of building everything from scratch, like on in kind of this separate bubble and ignoring kind of what's <laughs> already been done. And it, it looks like DAOs are like now in, in these growing pains because before it used to be a lot simpler, right? Like it, it was like projects were smaller. DeFi itself was a lot smaller. Uh, so maybe, you know, a lot of coordination just wasn't needed. But now that all these projects are becoming bigger and are needing to scale is when we're kind of running into the these problems where, okay, maybe having token holders vote on every single thing is not the best, you know, method, maybe like an, a more formal hierarchy and like organizational structure is needed. And so we're kind of slowly recreating some some version of just like how a company looks like but on chain so i don't know maybe maybe it works out you know kind of doing everything everything from scratch but using just like like web3 tools we'll see how how that works out i also don't don't underestimate that like 
new infrastructures do in also invent new things. Like, I think that's true too. So, you know, because otherwise it, it could sound pretty pessimistic. Like, okay, so we just recreate the exact same structure as traditional companies, like the Delaware C Corp. We recreate that on chain and we recreate like middle management and all these other layers. And, and everybody's like, that's like not exciting. You know, they're like, okay. First of all, I think it actually would be really useful to do that at a global level where you have a global company and you don't, uh, it's incredibly painful trying to actually run a global company otherwise. So maybe that is useful, that aspect of it. But that infrastructure could also allow somebody to come up with a totally new way of organizing people that hasn't been invented yet. And often with new infrastructure and new technologies, you do invent new things. And I think that's super cool and compelling. Yeah, I I think that that'll necessarily happen, you know, if if kind of all these teams are building these models from scratch using this kind of completely different infrastructure, I think kind of the the outcome will have to be different from what's already been created, but I think it it, it will, you know, it it will kind of take some things from, you know, the old model, but I think, yeah, I think it'll, it'll end up looking, looking different and hopefully, hopefully better. I think better. <laughs> That's why we're here, right? That's, yeah, exactly. And going back to kind of the issue of, of multi-sigs and how potentially, you know, oracles can help remove that central point of failure. A big issue with, with multi-sigs have obviously been cross-chain bridges. You know, they, they've been super reliant on multi-sigs. And that's how they've, we've seen kind of the biggest hacks in, in DeFi with these bridges. And they've just like, it's, it's been, it's happened so often now that it's, it's becoming obvious that it's, uh, or, or at least it's, it's, it's casting this doubt on what used to be a very common perception that, okay, like the future will be a cross-chain place where different blockchain ecosystems can interact now because so many bridges have been hacked that's being put into question so uh, yeah would would love your your thoughts on kind of how this can be improved yeah totally and i i agree cammy like okay so bridges have a bunch of problems and they break for a few reasons but i think the oracle problem is actually the biggest one and people don't always think of bridges as having an oracle problem but they do usually like remember when you have two blockchains they don't talk to each other they don't know anything about what's happening on the other blockchain and there are ways where you can like build a light client that can read another blockchain and that's like a kind of complicated engineering thing but a lot of approaches that a lot of bridges take is they use a service to tell blockchain a what blockchain b has done and specifically, they say, hey, if I've sent money on blockchain B destined for blockchain A, they tell blockchain A that and then send the money on blockchain A to the, to the user. And so there's an Oracle problem here where you've got to communicate a bit of data about what happened on the other chain onto the, the destination chain. And there are different approaches here. Some bridges are actually shockingly centralized that just basically have like a, a multi-sig. Sometimes it's a glorified multi-sig, but there are some bridges that just you're, you're trusting a pretty small set of people to say what happened there or not. And that had, can both be compromised, which can be very bad. It's also like risky, right? You can just <laughs> lose your money. Um, and it, it's very, very dangerous. We actually, it, it's sort of a little 
side note here, we came up with, there's a problem here um, with communicating between shards back when ETH2 had this multi-shard design. This is like way long ago when before the current Ethereum 2 design and like, how are we going to communicate between shards? And one idea we came up with, and this is just at like our lunch table before, well before COVID, was effectively using financial concepts like insurance to communicate between chains. And the idea, or between shards in this case, and the idea was, well, if I know a message is worth, say, $100,000, then I can, I can be the oracle and bridge this, right? Uh, provided I like bond or I insure that transaction for $100,000. Basically, like you can trust me entirely to report it over there as long as I've posted a hundred grand bond that if I lie to you, you can get back. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I mean, it, in theory it does, but like who posts these bonds? Yeah, you can call, call this like a relayer. They're charging a fee to do this. And I'll show you where I'm going with this. It's like we, we took this concept and we're basically saying, hey, we can, we can re- reframe this as an insurance problem where anyone can be bridging transactions, right? But they can only get paid back. They only get their bond back if the Oracle says, if nobody says it was like a fraudulent transaction. So it's a perfect use case for our optimistic Oracle here. And so where I'm getting to is like, we actually went ahead and implemented this. We built something, we built our own cross-chain bridge, the same team behind Uma called Cross. And it uses this optimistic Oracle design to bridge its EVM compatible chains. It's it's Ethereum to Polygon, Optimism, Arbitrum, Boba, um, and a few others are coming online. But we do this at actually shockingly low cost. It's very very efficient because of this optimistic design. And uh, yeah, it's 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 another use case I think of where Oracle designs in this optimistic design pattern can actually be a more secure and credible way to move information between chains. That's so interesting. Okay, so so your people can use across like this this oracle instead of like the polygon bridge. Yep. Yep, like we we do the same services like Hop or Stargate. There's some we support some different chains, but yeah, it's a use case of an optimistic oracle bridging your transactions. And and so like effect like practically how would you go about using this instead of like a multi-sig based bridge you go to a it's a front-end consumer facing application so you go to a cross.to.to and you bridge bridge away Uh, it's also been integrated with some aggregators now too which which is pretty cool how long has this been running it's very very recent i mean we had a v1 of this that was pretty under the radar but version two we put out I should really have this memorized, but about a month ago now, maybe five weeks ago. So it's a recent thing and it's been doing good volume. Yeah. Sorry. So I'm not trying to turn this into a pitch for a cross, but your users should check it out. It is pretty cool. And it's, in our opinion, it solves a lot of security problems here too. And like, it's a truly decentralized and truly permissionless method for bridging transactions or for bridging between chains. Oh, that's super interesting. So how much has been bridged so far? I should know again off the top of my head. I think we're over 350 million total bridge volume, but I, I don't have the exact number off the top of my head. I don't know if we've broken 400 quite yet, but we're on our way. So, real volume. Bridge volumes have dropped off recently in the bear market. Like the last couple of weeks have actually been pretty quiet. But people, we have this multi chain world. And as that grows, there's lots of volume to, to move. What's the, the main, like, 
where are people mostly going? Like what chain? So I think right now it's still mostly people going from Ethereum to layer twos, which makes sense. They're like layer twos are growing. We had their Odyssey week, which was like being kind of draw to get people into the Arbitrum platform. Optimism around their launch had lots of reasons why people bridged over there too. So most people are still moving from mainnet Ethereum onto these layer twos. It is interesting how in the bear market, how gas fees on Ethereum layer one have dropped so much that there's less of a need to move to layer twos at this particular moment. But anyone that's long-term bullish on the space knows that that's not going to persist. And these layer twos are like a really important scaling solution. Um, I think the most interesting thing that I want to track is how people move between layer twos themselves. Like, and I don't quite know what this use case is going to be like. Like once I'm on Arbitrum or on Optimism or on Polygon, which isn't a layer two, I know, but let's just put it in that category. Like, when do I want to move between chains? And I'm not totally sure. We don't have enough data on that behavior yet. I'm quite interested. Could you also use a cross for that? Yep. To bridge between layer twos? You're right. Like, I don't know how, like, whether a lot of people are doing that. It's mostly kind of Ethereum layer twos, not between layer twos. I don't know. We'll see. I mean, I think, like, I, I could see one hypothesis is like farms, like farmers, if there's a good farm, if they're farming on Optimism and there's a good farm on Arbitrum, then they want to get over there. But ignoring kind of the farming use case for the everyday user, I think it's going to be interesting to see because uh, it's not clear which of these layer twos are going to be used for what. Like, I'm very supportive of all these scaling solutions, but it's not clear to me who, like, is is one of them going to become like the NFT layer two and another going to be, I, I don't know, the, the gaming layer two. Who knows? But I do think it's important for users to be able to seamlessly move their funds between them. And nobody was going to want to have to go back to Ethereum mainnet and go to the other ones. So I think there's a really interesting dynamic there. Um, and I do think that as time goes on, we will have data around these bridging flows as to like and be able to hypothesize with more accuracy uh, around what is driving flows to different networks. That'll be super interesting. And speaking of just multi-chains, what about non-Ethereum, like non-EVM chains? Like, are you interested in building for, for, for them? Or do you see kind of, you know, is it better to just focus on kind of EVM blockchains? Like, do you think kind of that's a future? Look, I won't lie that I'm like generally partial to Ethereum. It's just, it's a cool community in there. And I think it is kind of the birth, birthplace of DeFi. But I'm not at all against other chains. You know, I think there's lots of good stuff happening in Solana and Avalanche. Uh, Avalanche is kind of, again, EVM compatible and very close to the Ethereum ecosystem in some ways, too. But I think there's lots of good stuff happening on Solana. And I, there's the only reasons why Across doesn't support it yet are purely technical and we'll solve them. Right. So there's no uh, there's no axe to grind there. I, I, yeah. And I, I'm, I am pretty interested, again, to see how these different networks continue to evolve in this sort of bear market, you know, like in the bear market, are they gonna, how are their personalities? How's the kind of the personality of these different networks gonna, gonna change? I think it's pretty interesting, but I, I think all of them are like here to stay. 
Oh, interesting. Okay. So do you see, so you, you do see kind of a future where there's like this EVM compatible blockchain ecosystem, but you know, also Solana's thriving and I don't know, others as well. Yeah. Like why not? I, I don't, I think like, I, I, I think that's not a crazy view. I don't, it's really hard to predict though. Like I think we've kind of got enough data right now to suggest that it's not a winner takes all market for these blockchains. There is this multi-chain world. And yeah, I am partial to the EVM ecosystem, but I also think there's great stuff happening on these other chains and everybody should learn from everybody else. And it doesn't seem to be a winner takes all market. So why not? Yeah. And a safe way to, to bridge between these chains will be, will be key if, if that's the case. If there's like, you know, all these kind of growing applications happening on non-compatible chains, bridging will be key. In this final section, we talk about what's next for UMA. What are the upcoming milestones to look out for? Beyond UMA, we talk about the areas and projects in DeFi that's worth keeping an eye on in the next few months. To swap crypto, a user has to choose among hundreds of DEXs on multiple networks, all offering different rates and fees. Do you want to avoid that hassle? Swap on OneInch, a DEX aggregator built to get you better rates than any single DEX. Enjoy unlimited liquidity across multiple networks and top-level security. Get OneInch on your phone now or swap on OneInch.io. I think to, to zoom out for a second and kind of level set, I am of the opinion that or the Oracle design space, we're just at like, we're just at the first inning of it. And Chainlink has built this like great product. It's been really useful for a lot of early DeFi innovations. I think though, the design space is big. And there are lots of other designs like our optimistic Oracle that and, and others that will continue to grow and evolve. And I think that that's actually very critical for a lot of Web3 use cases. As people build more and more different or interesting or unique applications, they're going to need different types of data and they're going to need other ways of getting that data. So it's, that's kind of like my, my meta thesis. In terms of our roadmap for the next few months, UMA itself, there is like an UMA 2.0 release, which really improves a lot of our, our staking features for people that vote in our system. That's on our roadmap and we're actually getting some of that code audited next week, which is super exciting. And we're doing a lot of work in improving our developer tooling to make it a lot easier for developers to build on this Oracle design. This DAO tooling brand we, we put together called Outcome is launching this optimistic governance framework. This is uh, sort of our version of SafeSnap, which will translate or will, which will safely and securely pass snapshot votes through to your Gnosis multisig. So I'm pretty excited about that. And then Across, Across is doing a couple of things. Across is launching a very interesting referral program that I'm really excited about. A very interesting referral program that kind of turns across users into their own owners. You like you earn portions of the network by by telling people about it, which I find really exciting. And there is a token launch coming up too that's like com completely community done as well. So a very like community centric token launch coming up uh, later later in the quarter. What do you mean by that? Well, we, we came up with this idea of a fair, fair launch back in November when we talked about this. And the idea, and I think we can talk about this experiment and how it's gone. The idea was we wanted to sort of say, hey, we've come up with this across code base. We think it's pretty great. We're not looking to kind of re retain 
too much ownership of this thing. Why doesn't the community help us design the token distribution of this? So it'll have a token, but the token here is really to give ownership of the protocol back to the community. And in some ways, as we've grown, we've we've realized like we tried to see can we work with our community to come up with a, a token launch plan? And I think we were like semi-successful. We it required like some handholding and some sort of guidance from us. But we're going down that process and we're trying to really keep our we're trying to really develop this token launch and this this token strategy with our community in mind. And so it, it's been a fun experiment or and learning experience there. So this was something you did with for the UMA token? No, the UMA token was we that got launched way back in 2020. Right. Oh, so this is just oh, right, this right, whole right. other this whole other thing for for this across token that again it's just this whole other protocol for for cross chain bridging that we think works remarkably well. Got it. Okay, and that's being uh, like the distribution, like how it's going to be distributed. That's that's coming from the community. It's coming from input from the community. It's a hard thing to like. How do you achieve consensus if there is no voting mechanism? There is no way of like seeing how people it's been a bit of an experiment for us oh right like how do you do that without the token (laughs) yeah exactly so it's like how do you design a token distribution without a token to vote on the token distribution and so you kind of you get yourself into a little little twisted thinking it through um but the the spirit here has been to do something that's incredibly community-centric and to really build a vibrant community around this protocol um and again, it goes back to some of our questions around DAOs too. Like, hey, does this actually always work? Like, I think we do need some leadership around the protocol itself, particularly in the cross-chain bridge space, which is so hyper-competitive that there are a lot, lots of other competitors out there. So yeah, the, the sort of uh, the plan around how do we launch a fair token with the across community has been pretty fun, but definitely a learning experience too. Very cool. Okay. We'll be keeping track of that. When, around when is that ex- like, I don't know, expected? I, I don't want my, I don't want the team to kill me by putting out deadlines or whatever, but you know, like next couple months, soonish. Yeah. We've, yeah. In the referral program, I think we're launching, might be launching by the time this is published too, but there's a very cool referral program. And it, it's actually pretty interesting where we're going to run this referral program before the token exists. So it's almost like this early bonus referral program where you're going to get ownership of this thing that doesn't yet exist by referring users and by generally just promoting this bridge. So I'm pretty excited to see how that experiment works too, because I think it'll be pretty fun. Nice. Okay. And then for for DeFi in general, like what are you excited about in the coming months? That's such a hard question. Like I do feel like we are between cycles of innovation right now. And I think, you know, Kim, we were talking about this just before we started recording too, like the sort of bear markets are a very fruitful time where I think a lot of like really interesting ideas emerge. I'm actually pretty excited to see what ideas emerge, but I don't have a very strong thesis or very strong like gut feel as to what it is now. I, I think this NFT stuff has really got a lot of people into the space. And I think, again, with the bear market coming, that hype cycle is going to die down some. But I feel like there's going to be really interesting innovations around NFT, like that, that we, I don't quite have a, have a, like a 
sense of yet, but something around NFTs and financing them like DeFi related, not just like borrowing and lending NFTs, like something much more sophisticated. I think there's going to be really cool shit that emerges from there. Nice. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Like, I think it's it's really hard to predict what exactly will come out of this. But just the fact, like the amount of people and and money that's come into crypto because of NFTs, like, you know, I I think it's a good guess to to say that it'll be something kind of NFT related, like one of the big innovations that we'll see come out of this bear market. Nice. And then to, to wrap up, what makes you defiant? <laughs> what makes me defiant? I think it's the fact that I want to not so secretly kind of invent a new legal system. Like, I think that is what DeFi is doing at its core. Like I said earlier, I think it's a legal invention, not a, not a finance one so much. So I guess I'm defiant in the sense that I don't really like some of the trade-offs of our traditional legal system. And I want to invent a new way to write contracts that works for everybody everywhere. I love that you came back to this point because I thought it was super interesting when you mentioned it and then I forgot to come back to it. So can you get, like expand on that a little bit? Like, what do you mean do, that it's it's more legal than finance? Well, I mean, we talked about DAOs too. Like DAOs are right now reinventing a lot of things that companies and corporations or organizational structures have already done. DeFi has invented some new things. I would argue like AMMs, like Uniswap are a new thing that doesn't have a a TradFi counterpart, but a lot of DeFi is reinventing things that TradFi has already happened. Like the finance stuff isn't really that new. What is new is how we are enforcing these financial contracts. So traditional finance is all enforced by legal recourse. It's all like like any basically any financial product and service, you rip it down and the actual technology behind it is like a legal contract. This is very true with insurance and with derivatives, but even like Robinhood and your stock account, like you only know you have that money because there's a legal contract that says Robinhood can't like go and sell your stocks for you, right? DeFi has invented an entirely new way of writing contracts, like entirely new that has, it's just not legal recourse. There's no legal system involved. And I think it's lost on people how freaking cool that is that we've invented a new a new contracting system and it is literally like like the the defi contracts their underlying technology that enforces them is entirely different from the legal contract that tradfi is based off of right and these systems have trade-offs defi is global by nature global by default and it's like you know, a 14 year old kid in their basement can go and write a defi contract is not global you only have access if you're within that legal jurisdiction and you have to be like, you have to have $10 million to invent a new financial product. Right? So big differences here. And I think uh, this is a, it's super cool that, uh, that DeFi has come and invented an entirely new way of writing contracts. Totally. hundred percent. That's so interesting. And also like a double-edged sword, uh, like, like you were, yeah, there, there's, there's trade-offs, right? Like, it's 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 fascinating and it it just like unleashes this wave of of innovation and lowers barriers of entry to the financial system and like so many good things are coming out of it but at the same time it's it's scary and and maybe not very usable at this moment for institutions who do need that like actual kind of undo button and have some kind of 
meat-based legal recourse, not just like a smart contract that says, oh, like liquidate this at whatever price. So I don't know. I think maybe kind of DeFi evolves where, where you can have everything. Yeah. I mean, again, software eats the world, right? I'm very confident software will eat finance. I'm very confident that DeFi will eat finance or like eat traditional finance, or we will find ways where traditional finance can, CeFi can use DeFi, let's say. I think that's all going to happen. But yeah, the trade-offs are real. And you know, you've seen it in the last few months too, where again, I think that a lot of the contagion and bear market three-hour stuff, that's not DeFi. That is very much like the tools of centralized finance that have caused that, that, that collapse. But, you know, DeFi still has a lot of usability issues, a lot of... There's still lots of reasons why it's, it, it's, got, it's got some ways to go. Yeah, there's a reason why it's still niche, even though it's, it's so much better. It's so, like obviously better in, in, in many other ways. Hart, this was really fun, interesting conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time. And yeah, I'm looking forward to how... Oracles get implemented in all these different use cases we talked about seems like something that's just very useful and and needed so just super early and and yeah really interested to see how how this all plays out so thanks for giving us the alpha here thank you so much for having me it's really great thank you for listening to the defiant podcast Together, we are taking hold of the world of DeFi and Web3 with the most influential voices in the space. Don't forget to subscribe to all our channels, our newsletter, YouTube, social media accounts, and of course, this podcast. See you next week.